Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. Today I'm going to be joined by Dr. Michael Graziano. He's the Assistant Professor of Religion at the University of Northern Iowa. His research and teaching focus on law, education, national security, and American religion. He's the author of Errand into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion and the History of the CIA, which is from Chicago Press uh, in 2021. And that is going to be the topic of our conversation, the long and interesting history of religion and the CIA. So Dr. Graziano, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Right on. Well, I guess first tell us a little bit about your background getting into this. What what was the draw for you um, into this clearly very interesting and um, sordid topic? Yeah. So for me, I did not plan to write a book about the CIA like that was not uh, that was never part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, this this book comes out of my dissertation when I was doing my PhD, but my original plan was something um, really sort of far away removed from this. I was uh, I, I still am interested in religion and law like First Amendment type stuff. Um, and I'd originally planned to write a book about sort of 19th century court cases, especially involving like anti-Catholicism mm-hmm. and like you can just sort of hear, you know, publishers beating my door down to get that. Sure. Um, and when I was sort of thinking through what that would look like, I was doing some research on um, sort of the uh, history of anti-Catholicism anyway, in a kind of really roundabout way, I stumbled upon um, the story of Tom Dooley, who ends up sort of being part of my story in Vietnam and the role of Catholicism, American Catholicism and Vietnamese Catholicism um, in the Vietnam War. And anyway, bit by bit, the sort of uh, my focus shifted, and so it, it, you know, shifted centuries and everything else. And I ended up doing this, um, which was really, uh, again, not what I expected, but I feel fortunate because I, I'm still really interested in it. When I, I talk to other folks or I read other folks who say they finish a project and just hate it and are done with it, um, I'm gratified that uh, <laughs> that I don't hate this yet. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Right. That's and. I think you picked a, like an eternally interesting topic, so that's good for you, good for you. And I'm yeah. sure there's endless amount of of work that uh, should that needs to be done either by you or someone else uh, to to keep understanding this. Um, okay, so in in your work, you talk about the religious approach um, that the CIA took, and especially towards its foundings and the. Uh, predecessor with the OSS. Can you talk about, kind of give us some context on where the CIA was in the beginnings um, and what they were trying to do with uh, the, quote, religious approach? Yeah, for sure. So the the kind of thrust of my argument in the book is that religion and intelligence um, were linked uh, operationally and ideologically for the CIA. Um, I use a term that American spies in World War II came up with called the religious approach to intelligence. And basically for them, what that meant was using religion as uh, a tool, trying to both understand, um, or we could think about like theorizing what religion is, 
but basically as a means to um, access populations around the world, whether that was just to get um, information or to get, you know, uh, people to help support their operations in various places. Um, but I think in a kind of bigger way, and we see this with um, the CIA in the Cold War and its predecessor, the OSS in World War II, there was this idea that if you controlled or if you could understand people's belief, you could then control their actions. Um, and it's a very sort of mechanistic understanding of human nature, right? That like, if you change what people believe, you change how they act. Um, and this was, I think, at the core of the religious approach. Um, they went about this in different ways. They applied this to different people groups and religions and different regions. Um, but that was always one of their focuses, yeah, with the religious approach. Yeah, and you've kind of hit on it before, but I thought it was really interesting coming at this because I would have definitely guessed having an evangelical background myself and knowing um, quite a bit about our particular, the particularized um, love and support of war that goes way back with, uh, with evangelicals and particularly the start of the Cold War. But yeah, talk about the particular Catholicism that was at play um, in, in that kind of formation. I thought that was really fascinating um, with, you know, wow, Bill Connor and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a ton of stuff going on. I think one of the surprising things to me too was the role of Catholicism in the story. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, the story's it's complicated for a couple of reasons. One is that in American religious history, for most of it, right, anti-Catholicism is just sort of really profoundly influential. Um, and so we don't typically think of Catholics, American Catholics at the head of, you know, national security institutions, especially like earlier on in American history, but that starts to shift in the Cold War. Um, and there's all sorts of um, interesting work being done on this uh, that uh, thinks about, you know, what we might call like a law and order Catholicism. Um, but one of the things that I found in my work was that this is happening in the intelligence agency. So um, what, uh, his nickname he has Wild Bill, uh, Wild Bill Donovan. He. Oh yeah, uh, runs I, I, I'm sorry. I said uh, apologies to anyone with a Irish background. Yes, I. Oh no, I. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> I okay, knew, yeah. No, no I knew there uh, was a. I knew there was an O drop from it, and I, as soon as I said, it, I was like, was that the right? Uh, uh, no, but it wasn't. Wild Bill Donovan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wild Bill Donovan. Yeah. Um. So. Uh. Yeah, he runs the OSS, which is the CIA's kind of spiritual predecessor in World War II. Um, and he's, uh, he's really influential. Um, he's really influential in sort of setting up how Americans think about um, intelligence work. He's really influential for the CIA later on. I mean, and he never works for the CIA, right? But a lot of CIA officers, especially early on in the Cold War, um, look to him as kind of one of like the founding fathers of modern American spycraft. Um, and part of that was his ideas about um, Catholicism. He himself was a Catholic. Um, but in the way that a lot of Americans, not just Catholics, are religious, he wasn't, as far as we can tell, um, the, the reason he's interesting is not that he was like devoutly Catholic or had, you know, really passionate ideas about, I don't know, transubstantiation or whatever. He was interested in it mostly because it presented a political obstacle to his um, political career. He wanted to run for office, right? People, um, a lot of his fellow uh, Americans, especially Protestants, were suspicious of his motivations. And I think through these experiences, he really came to understand religion and its connection to politics in a way that I think eluded some of his fellow citizens, particularly, again, um, American Protestants who were largely in power. 
to make a long story short, where this goes with the intelligence services is that in World War II, when he gets the reins of the OSS, one of the things he becomes really interested in doing is working with the Vatican and the institutional Catholic Church, um, because I think, in part, he has a broader understanding of what it, of what religion can do, how it can influence people, um, and I think he wanted to sort of um, turn the tables, right, to sort of use it for ends um, that he found to be uh, appropriate. Yeah, uh, I thought it was interesting. Um, one of your one of your pieces in politicaltheology.com, uh, um, talking about talking about your work kind of in general, um, the question that you bring up there, I thought was was really succinct and kind of leads into a little bit more digging down, but you say, what possible use could the CIA have for this? <laughs> we, uh, in the previous episode, we talked with um, Stephen Kinzer about the CIA and um, and the discovery of LSD and MK Ultra and the just the discovery of something that had um, and still has really great potential for good in the world if used um, responsibly and properly and therapeutically. And I thought it was really interesting crossover, uh, at least as I was reading it. Clearly, any any world religion, um, whether it's my own particular faith or, or um, you know, the Buddhism that, that you talk about with in the context of Vietnam has great potential for good in the world. And yet the CIA uh, in their DNA, um, even again, going back to the OSS, um, is not just taking LSD on, <laughs> um, on that path, but also religion. So um, yeah, I guess going back to the, the first part of that question, what use did the CIA have for for religion as it played out? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I, um, I work in a religious studies program. I teach religious studies classes every semester. And one of the conversations that I have um, sometimes with students is that they're interested in, you know, majoring in this or taking more classes, but they're hearing from their parents or whatever. They're not sure about like what use this information has. Like, am I gonna, you know, you're not gonna get a job at the religion factory or something, um, <laughs> which is true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that surprises, you know, the students I work with, it surprises me when I read, you know, other books, or I think when people read mine, is again, what you're getting at, right? The uses of this information. Um, and I think the CIA, whatever else you can say about them, and you could say a lot, they were very clear-eyed in the Cold War um, about the possibilities for, for the uses of seemingly weird stuff. Um, and right, if we take seriously the idea that the outcome of the Cold War was understood by these people, right, as a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. you were grasping for any sort of advantage you could have. Um, and in that case, right, something like what today we might call, for lack of a better word, like religious literacy and understanding of religion um, begins to be seen as really useful. I mean, when I talked to, uh, when I interviewed some of the folks who were involved in these projects, one of the things that really stood out to me was just the sense that, like, man, if there is any advantage we could glean from this, we sort of, we, we had to try. I, I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with, um, uh, kind of related, I guess, to the LSD work, but um, there's all sorts of research that was done by the CIA and other um, uh, parts of the intelligence and national security community about things that, for lack of a better word, we might call like the paranormal um, or sort mm -hmm. of thinking mm -hmm. about um, 
uh, like the men who stare at goats, right? If anyone's sure, this, sure, sure. this is that kind of stuff. And I was talking to a guy who was involved in this, who agreed to give an interview, and it was very interesting where he was talking about, um, uh, you know, the, oh gosh, there's a name for it, but doing things like the ability to walk through walls and stuff like this. Um, and he was talking to me about how, like, well, it seemed crazy, but like, what if we could, like, if we could, that mm -hmm. seems like a useful thing to do. Um, and while, of course, you know, my book is, is, you know, not much about walking through walls, it does share this interest um, in applying things that other people had either discarded as crazy or maybe had underestimated. Um, and I think one of the, one of the reasons that religion fits here is that basically, to make a long story short, in World War II and the early Cold War, there were parts of the intelligence services that really tried consciously to apply religion operationally. Those operations succeeded for reasons that maybe didn't have to do with the religion aspect of it, mm -hmm. right? But then in the kind of after action report, it gets attributed to some of the religion work, right? And so it kind of builds and builds um, in ways that maybe uh, were due to, to other factors at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, there's an, another interesting parallel as, as you're saying that I was thinking about the, again, the underlying goals and ideas, even going back to LSD, uh, and, and I'm sure it was probably the same with the paranormal situation as, yeah, it, it's probably a long shot, but what if Russia figures this out first? What exactly? If, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, what if particularly, particular to the thought of the time, like, you know, what if, these crazy atheists figure out, you know, co-opt religion. So it's, it's an interesting twist to like, so we're going to go ahead and co-opt co yeah. and use it. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the difficulties of studying the CIA, especially today, is that it's really easy to project our understanding of the kind of contemporary CIA backwards. Um, and one of the things that I learned was surprising to me when I started this project is that the early CIA the early CIA was a largely liberal kind of internationalist organization. Um, it was staffed by people who, while certainly were involved in all sorts of you know uh, shady stuff at times, that faction inside the CIA sort of ends up losing throughout the Cold War. They're diminished throughout the Cold War, but there are people involved early on who are sort of considering um, you know uh, other uses for American power, other ways American power could be applied. Um, and I think when we lose sight of that, right, like the kind of um, these kinds of possibilities that you're talking about, right, they drop off our radar. And I think that's a shame because, right, in examining that stuff and understanding that stuff, I think we get a much better understanding of um, why, you know, why the history of the Cold War went the way it did. Yeah. Um, one, one other thing with that and this kind of transitions to a character you mentioned earlier as, as the idea of, you know, the difficulty I'm sure, and you can speak to this, of getting a hold of classified documents and doing the research that is required to find out anything about the CIA. But one of the things you mentioned is that the most, really the, the clearest examples of what was going on were the published um, mainstream writings of the time, and and you mentioned Thomas Dooley and his his novel work around Vietnam. Can you tell us his story? 
Yeah, so um, Tom Dooley was a US Navy sailor from St. Louis. He was a Catholic. Um, he gets involved in um, the early American efforts in um, Vietnam, or I guess at the time was still kind of French Indochina. Um, and yeah, I mean, essentially, he is stationed at um, he's stationed at some of these ports um, on the Vietnamese coast when there's just a sort of massive refugee exodus, right, because of the ongoing conflict. And what ends up happening is he's kind of um, the right person at the right place, um, where through a series of sort of chance encounters, um, he uh, comes into uh, connections with US intelligence officers who are looking for a way to kind of spin this story to the American public. And what ends up happening is that within a year or so, um, with the help of the US Navy and the CIA, Tom Dooley writes one of the best-selling um, books of the 1950s, which is uh, it's called Deliver Us from Evil. Um, and the title is suggestive of the contents. And I mean, the book is basically the idea that um, Vietnam is a largely Catholic country, which it wasn't, it was largely Buddhist, um, but it was a largely Catholic country persecuted by um, the godless communist atheists in the North. Um, and Americans uh, kind of live with religious freedom and they enjoy it every day. Um, and if Americans take that seriously, they need to be ready to stand up and defend religious freedom around the world, even for um, non-white Catholics in you know, foreign lands. Um, it becomes a bestseller, he becomes a national celebrity. Um, uh, you know, one of the kind of surprising things when I was researching was that I'd never really heard of him before this, but when I was looking back at some of the um, public opinion polling, he clocks in at like number two or three in like a Gallup opinion poll of like the most admired Americans of the 1950s, right? I think he's like just behind Eisenhower or something like this. Um, and so, right, he's very famous, right? Like people knew him. Um, and he comes to really sort of be this pitch man, this salesman for um, greater American involvement in what will eventually become um, the Vietnam War. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned the replacement of of the the Buddhist religion um, of the Vietnamese with a kind of projected Catholicism, and that was another interesting theme as I was looking through your work is the attempt to flatten um, world religions, and it seemed like. From what you were saying, it wasn't just the CIA's idea to do this, but it was that was kind of the thinking at the time. And yeah, I mean, I have questions about chicken, chicken and egg, and that you know, obviously, right. <laughs> anytime the CIA is involved, you're kind of like, how much of that is their idea, and how much of it is drawn from other ideas? But um, but yeah, talk about talk about how that uh, one quote that I really enjoyed uh, was. CAA officers or, or directors um, talking through kind of this Buddhist faith um, issue and saying, you know, the problem is that Buddha was a man of peace. So right. <laughs> we're going to have a hard time co-opting him um, for our for our purposes. So yeah, anyways. Kind of the yeah, I mean, of religion, yeah. No, it's a it's a good question. I mean, the CIA. So, okay. The CIA was a very sort of self-conscious um, maintainer of its own image during the Cold War. 
And so for all sorts of reasons, it wanted to project an image of this kind of like all powerful institution. In reality, of course, that wasn't always the case, right? And the right hand didn't always know what the left was doing. Um, and a good example of that is that in general, throughout the Cold War, the CIA really prefers to kind of weave in um, uh, things that are true into like its propaganda or into its um, uh, disinformation, um, rather than just create something out of whole cloth. And so the the role of the Catholics in Vietnam and Tom Dooley is a great example of that because I mean, there was certainly no shortage of um, violence in Vietnam. Um, there was uh, widespread violence directed against particularly Vietnamese Catholics by communists in the North. Um, and what the CIA did with that though was um, as you're getting at sort of build a larger story, right? It, um, it flattened a lot of these differences. It flattens a lot of the dynamics, um, you know, within um, the kind of versioning like Vietnamese nation state and makes it into something um, that's really understandable to an American, you know, who, I don't know, lives in Des Moines, who's reading Reader's Digest in the 1950s, where an excerpt of this book is printed. Um, and it becomes a sort of uh, really simple black and white story about good and bad and, and whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of that, though, to your point about not just flattening the situation in Vietnam, but kind of flattening differences between religions is a broader, it's a broader trend. Um, so the CIA, this wasn't something necessarily that I'm not even sure at times the CIA was doing consciously, um, but basically really popular ideas, popular American ideas about religion at mid-century um, absolutely influenced US intelligence work. And one of these really big ideas that's really common and still is actually pretty common in some quarter, uh, corners even of the academy is that religion is universal, that like everyone everywhere is religious, everyone has it. Um, the religions might look different, they might have different rituals, right? Um, but everyone has it, like to be without religion is just sort of not possible. Um, we see this with uh, still cliches that we hear about religion, like, you know, different ways up the same mountain or blind men touching an elephant, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever, right? There's a mountain, there's an elephant, like there's a there there. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, like the history of religion, people who study religion know that that's not true, that it's one thing to sort of advocate for, you know, the equality of religion before the law, you know, that's great. Um, but also just religions are different, right? They do different right. things, they ask different questions, they pose different answers. Um, but right, if you kind of come into this as the CIA did with the idea that religion everywhere um, shares a kind of core or essence that's the same, you can swap it out, right? You can understand, right? The idea is that if you understand Catholicism really well, you can understand Buddhism just as well, right? Just by swapping around the parts. Um, and that idea I think was really influential um, on the religious approach that the CIA used in Vietnam. Yeah. When shifting to another religion that I suppose was all the same to, <laughs> to the, uh, the big wigs there is, um, is the story of uh, of Iran, and I uh, cover this in chapter seven of your book, and particular to that, the time leading up to the Iranian revolution in 1979, it seems like, again, there was, there was this denial, this denial, I guess, um, uh, this thought that this would, it would never kind of become a religious, um, uprising. And I was particularly curious um, if the question of um, 
of Mosaddegh ever came up to these CIA officers who, um, you know, it was U.S. intelligence that overthrew um, Mosaddegh in the in the early '50s, and that he, that became a large sticking point with uh, with kind of the the reemergence of of really sort of an Islamic um, religious state of Iran that that really reemerged after the Shah um, and you know really continues up to this date. Um, so yeah, I'm curious uh, if they saw that coming, what their answer was, you know uh, how how their recent past factored into, um, just dealing with the Shah up to the rev the revolution. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the CIA in Iran, I don't think you can separate uh, the overthrow of Mossadegh, um, the support of the Shah, from what happens in 1979. So, yeah, the CIA. Uh, I mean, the long and short of it. For any listeners who are not familiar um, with this story, mm -hmm. long and short of it is that the CIA just gets the entire situation wrong with the Iranian Revolution. Um, they very confidently send back reports that, like, um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but there's a very famous sentence, something to the effect of, like, the CIA, like, quote, the CIA is, an, or the uh, quote, Iran is not in a revolutionary or pre revolutionary situation, end <laughs> quote. Um, and that's in like early 79 or late 78. And sure. that's just not what happened bad read bad read yeah it is a bad read um would like to probably be able to do that one over i imagine um but you know part of the reason for that um which only becomes clear after the revolution is a lot of stuff as i as i argue in the book related to the religious approach it's related to the idea that um all religion everywhere is at the core the same one of the kind of side effects of that is that when um the iranian um student protesters seize the embassy they're very surprised to find that people, they're trying to find the intelligence officers and they thought that the way to do that would be to find um, who spoke Farsi, like who actually had the language mm -hmm. skills, but they're sort of puzzled to learn that no one did. Yeah. And they were like, what do you mean? No, like, what are you talking about, right? Like that, but it, this is part of like, it's, it's just one small piece in a broader story where you realize that the attention to detail just wasn't um, there. Um, one of the things when I was working through the declassified materials um, about Iran is that right before the revolution, in the decades before the revolution, there was not much attention paid to Islam. It ramps up very quickly um, with the, you know, uh, with the revolution and right after to the point that in the early 1980s, there's like CIA memos that are like giving really close reads to like minor Shia like festivals and like mm -hmm. the history thereof. I mean, just like nitty gritty details which might be factually accurate, right? Like it's not that the information's wrong or something. It's just, it's totally different than thinking about Islam beforehand, which really um, was quite Orientalist, quite racist um, with the idea that what Muslims understand is force. Muslims hate change um, and they love religion. And as a result, they will obviously love the Shah and hate communism because communism hates religion. The Shah keeps communism at bay thus the Shah is right um, stable. Um, and that was kind of the extent of the analysis for a while. Um, and as we know, it just that, you know, it, it didn't work out that way. Um, it leads the CIA to really fundamentally underestimate Ayatollah Khomeini, um, his appeal to Iranians um, 
you know, I've talked to people who were involved in this um, uh, at the time. And I think, again, what's really striking is just that while the institutional CIA, the institutional State Department was kind of caught unawares, there were people on the ground who thought, you know, something is up here, like something is not right, you know, when they're sort of matching what they're hearing from Langley with sort of what they're seeing on the ground in Tehran. Um, but, you know, those concerns were just, uh, as far as I can tell, largely dismissed beforehand, right, that um, a kind of religious challenge to American uh, power in Iran was almost literally unthinkable. I was really struck as you were describing the simplistic view of kind of a post 9-11 um, description of, of Iran, uh, you know, Iran and, you know, the in Iraq and the um, the axis of evil um, kind of as they were all lumped together um, and this idea that Islam only understands force obviously didn't die um, you know and I'm not I don't I don't know if I have it in front of me that the CIA in particular is to blame for that but certainly um, you know U.S. intelligence in general. Um, didn't you know at least came back to that so I'm, I'm curious um yeah i'm curious about that is that or was that just kind of the administrate the bush administration's um kind of unhinged um you know dick cheney sort of bald-faced lying into wars that were um already set up so yeah i'm, I'm curious if that was if that was a strand that that you picked up, you know, 30 years after the fact. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, like my book, you know, the, the timeline ends in the 80s for me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, certainly a lot of this stuff has all kinds of contemporary connections. The idea that Islam, the idea that Islam only understands force, um, that Muslims are sort of small C, conservative in the sense of like hating change, liking tradition, um, that they listen to authority, right? That uh, this is, it's a top-down society. And so what you do is you talk to the imam at the mosque on Friday, you tell them what to say, and then everyone believes it. Those ideas, while certainly I think influential in some of the policymaking in the 2000s, have a long history too. Um, and, and this is not um, my work, uh, you know, for listeners who are interested in this, um, uh, Zarina Gruel uh, wrote an awesome book called Islam as a Foreign Country, mm. where she talks about the history of these ideas more broadly in um, the kind of American imagination. Um, others talk about how, right, the Americans themselves, of course, didn't come up with this, right, that this, this idea really traces itself back to like British and French colonialism in the Muslim world. Um, uh, Dina Rezik wrote this really awesome book called um, uh, Orientalism and I think Western Intelligence Analysis. Um, and if you ever have that experience, you're reading a book and it just sort of stops in your tracks, like, damn, right? Like this, yeah. like good, but right. Like that was that book for me. Like it's mm -hmm. sort of, I read it early in the process when I was writing this is just phenomenal. Um, really recommend her work to anyone interested in it because she shows, right. That these, you know, that these ideas aren't new, um, and the way they're used time and time again, um, to sort of, uh, advance the conquest or colonization of Muslim peoples, um, and how, of course, all of these ideas, right, exist 
really without any kind of connection to actual living, breathing Muslim people, right? Like right, right. this is just not like Muslims are not consulted when um, these kind of, you know, analyses are, are put forward. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I do think those ideas, um, you know, those ideas were influential in the 2000s. Um, I think we see that in a lot of the rhetoric of the Bush administration. I mean, I, I think we see it. Um, I, I think it's actually kind of a bipartisan idea, especially in the um, early 2000s. Um, but yeah, I, you know, part of that is 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 these long running ideas. Part of it is also the you know domino effect of earlier American policies. Like we were just talking about Iran, and it's still striking to me how many you know sort of you know serious policymakers or op-ed writers talk about the sort of um, antagonism of Iran towards the United States without really sort of thinking about the history there, right? Like why might yeah. Iran be suspicious of the intentions of the United States? Um, that you're not, it's, this is not just something that sort of, you know, happened in 2004 or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, Iran, yeah. a place that, uh, a nation that has never, that has no recent history anyways of crossing their borders to invade anyone. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, I mean, we can go on and on too about the, intelligence that you know even the obama administration um used to set up the uh, the iran nuclear deal and then was trashed by the trump government um but, but yeah that that whole thinking of they they hate us you know because of our freedom and you know christianity or whatever and and they are there are they have this massive nuclear weapons program, which is also kind of just this, this really interesting, I guess, historical projection on what's actually happening um, when, we, when we take a look at, at another nation that, I mean, let's just say all that information is true. I mean, they're, you know, it's in, at A, step A, and we're five times around the alphabet on our nuclear capabilities, on our ability to affect um, thinking throughout the world, um, you know, just on our nuclear stockpile. Um, so yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting um, and kind of horrifying <laughs> history uh, of just yeah again flattening the narrative, and then we can kind of put whatever intentions we want to on. Um, on whatever nation we want. And yeah, again, not considering any of the, the context of why they might not like us very much, <laughs> why we might have set ourselves up as a as an enemy for decades. Yeah, and it's, I, I mean, yeah, this to me is just another example of um, one of the reasons I find studying religion so interesting, right? For me, the, um, you know, the, one of the really fascinating parts is thinking about how people make meaning and interpret the actions of people around them and, right, how do they sort of build worldviews? And when it comes to stuff like this, one of the kind of stories that always comes to mind um, from my time putting this book together is how, um, in the example of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini was seen as this kind of like, um, mysterious figure, he, you know, he was seen as like a blast from the past with like these kind of stone age, quote unquote, ideas, um, according to the CIA anyway, but he was still this kind of mysterious figure, like what was he trying to do? Mm -hmm. You know, was he trying to get at? Um, and one of the, I mean, kind of 
funny, I guess, darkly funny, deeply ironic mm -hmm. things I found while researching this was that a lot of the questions you would find in CIA memos about what he was interested in or what he was doing, Khomeini had like answered in a book, like written 10 years beforehand. Like he, the guy <laughs> literally writes a book and I think it's called something like on Islamic government or, or something mm -hmm. like this. Um, I don't have the title in front of me, but like he straight up just says like, here's what I think about what a proper like Muslim yeah. um, nation state looks mm -hmm. like. It's set up in this way for this reason because of X, Y, Z, one, two, three. Um, and I just found myself like I don't know how much clearer, right? Like the information <laughs> yes. could have been. Like it's not a myth. Like he write a he wrote a book. You could go to the yeah. library and find an answer to this question. Like, um, but then again, right? It's like well, he's very mysterious. Um, and I think, I mean, this is you know this is a problem or challenge well beyond the CIA or the U.S. government or anything else, right? But um, you know how kind of deeply influential these really um, simplistic ideas about other people are right um and how surprisingly difficult it is to i think change our world views or sort of um to learn about the people around us right like why they may do what they do or why they care about what they care about yeah 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 so i guess that kind of brings us up to to right now um and in this moment i think it was uh it was really interesting that you mentioned the liberal starting place of much of the CIA, at least um, as it as the uh, directors and um, influential members um, of the early uh, iteration, because, yeah, I think for a long time, as in my understanding anyways, um, liberals and certainly people on the left have been extremely suspicious of <laughs> CIA action. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, for good reason, obviously, that I'm, I'm slanted in that. Um, but it's been interesting in, particularly in the Trump years, when people from the FBI or from the CIA had um, dirt on Trump and had um, mean things to say about, like, you know, frankly, a horrifying <laughs> political figure. Um, there is this there's this, I think, rush back um, within a lot of liberals and a, I would say a lot that are generally considered on the left um, to defend these institutions like the FBI and CIA. Um, and I, I mean, I think historically that's fascinating. I think um, politically, I think that's, uh, obviously I think that's problematic <laughs> the way I phrase that, um, but I'm curious, yeah, whether it's whether it's um, anything particular to religion or anything that you see right now in the CIA that perhaps is is different um, from the time period you're talking about, or um, yeah, I guess how much of it, it remains unchanged as part of the DNA. Yeah. Anytime you're, I mean, it's a good question. Anytime you're talking about the contemporary CIA or contemporary intelligence community, um, the sourcing dries up, right? Like it's, sure, it's yeah. really hard to know. You'll know uh, about it in 40 years when it's some of the right, stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll circle back. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I have not been invited um, into the CIA, although if anyone's listening, um, you know, feel free to invite me. I'm happy to, you know, um, walk around and take a tour, but um I, you know, I don't know. My my sense is purely from sort of open source um, uh, 
stuff, right? Like what's sort of in the public domain. My sense is that um, the CIA is, as it was in the past, an absolutely massive institution with thousands and thousands of employees who do wildly different things every day. Um, and a lot of them are doing stuff that is just incredibly mundane and right, really right. whatever. They're like studying Brazilian economic policy, which is not to demean Brazilian economic policy. Yeah, it's right. not my particular cup of tea, but um, is important. And this goes back to, I think, one of the original um, intentions of the CIA when it was formed was basically um, to provide information to the president to make decisions about stuff. It was to learn stuff about everywhere. Um, of course, its mission grows beyond that in ways that were not always legal um, or well-defined. But the idea that like people in positions of power in the United States government should have access to information um, really quickly about really diverse stuff, there's ways that that can be really good, right? Like if you're going to sort of um, be making decisions about stuff, it'd be nice to learn things about other people, right? It would be nice to know about like, um, right? You can imagine all sorts of uses for this information. Um, right. But, uh, you know, of course, it ends up um, being used in all sorts of ways that are really problematic. Um, it develops an operational component, which um, it wasn't clear originally was going to sort of be part of the plan. Um, but I think, you know, the result is that today, it's just really difficult to know exactly what's going on at the CIA. And in part because the CIA, one of the kind of curious things that has happened over the decades is that the CIA takes a lot of the heat or attention for the intelligence community writ large. Like there's mm -hmm. all sorts of three letter agencies that are doing yeah. all sorts of curious things. Yeah. Um, but the CIA is certainly um, the most well-known, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, there's a story to tell I guess what I would say is that there's a story to tell about the CIA, the FBI, other sort of um, security institutions that really kind of had a, a detour in their missions after 9-11. Um, mm. Yeah, I think of the FBI in particular shifting from like uh, sort of, you know, investigating crimes to almost like crime prevention or preventing terrorism, yeah. right, which is not its mission. That's a totally different kind of thing to do. Um, and it's difficult to turn these institutions on a dime, right, to sort of shift the direction. Um, but I am curious to see, right, what the sort of post-Iraq, um, post post-Afghanistan mission of these institutions um, becomes. I think we're getting a glimpse of it uh, with Ukraine, right, uh, the mm -hmm. situation in Ukraine, which is really, um, and of course, right, again, all I know is what I read in the papers, but um, is the U.S. intelligence community really starting to do what it was built to do, um, right? And what it was not built to do was sort of counterinsurgency operations in Fallujah, right? Like what it was built to do was sort of challenge um, Russian power in Eastern Europe. And I think mm. that's what we're seeing. Yeah, that's that's an interesting place to leave it. And uh, uh, um, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation to, yes. <laughs> to have, which is awesome. Um, Okay, so yeah, there's so much I want to follow up on, but we're gonna. I guess we're gonna. Have, I guess one one thing, one more thing, one more thing um, is yep. particular to your initial interest in studying um, First Amendment rights, uh, freedom of religion. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what you just spoke to, um, in you know, especially the aftermath of. 9-11 um, 
Iraq and Afghanistan wars, um, you know, dirty wars even um, of the the eighties, and um, you know, going going all the way back, um, and and then up to the present day. Like I I wonder from from like a First Amendment standpoint. Um, I guess where we're at right now and and all that like is this is it just as dangerous now to be outside of kind of a waspy religious standpoint um in in american life i mean is that is that something that um you know because i i know because i have family that are conservatives that work on this issue from a very conservative standpoint um and a lot of the freedom of religion at, as I as I read it and and as I see the work that is engaged in you know a lot of it's about abortion um, and a lot of it's about uh, LGBTQ um, I, I would call it suppression um, and um, and worse but um, yeah it's 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 interesting like I, I just kind of want to push that from your perspective and um, and as you read um, the situation for particularly for religious folks that are outside of, um, you know, my own particular or even like a Catholic um, background religiously. Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> in general, um, you know, I, uh, well, speaking as a historian, I, I, you know, I try to avoid predicting the future mostly because yeah. I'm just really bad at it. But um, I mean, I think you know, I, I think what we could say is that, broadly speaking, if you are outside of um, the norm religiously, uh, you know, if you are not, like you were saying, a sort of waspy Protestant, um, you know, I, I don't know that there would be a better time than right now to sort of be alive, right? But that's not to say that now is like perfect or great or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's just to say that, right, I mean, like the... Um, as I'm sure all your listeners know, right, the history of like uh, race and religion and class, I mean, is, you know, really difficult. Um, that said, I suspect in terms of First Amendment stuff, um, you know, we may, um, we may see some changes through the Supreme Court, I don't know. Um, we just went through a period, I forget how many years, where there were no Protestants on the Supreme Court, right, it was mm. Catholics and Jews, um, which, is not, was not uh, the case for most of American history, sure, right? Sure. Um, but I think to go back to one of your earlier questions um, about, you know, the role of Catholicism, like in the security institutions, I think one thing we could say when we think about sort of changes to um, the First Amendment or how people think about it is the increasing role of Catholicism. Like it, it clearly has a seat at the table um, in part, I think some would argue, because of um, some of the alliances, the broader sort of culture war alliances built um, in the 70s and 80s forward to today. And if anyone's curious in this, I would totally recommend the um, Law and Order series of uh, uh, posts or essays on political theology that you mentioned earlier. There's all sorts of cool people writing like Daisy Vargas and uh, Katie Holscher and Matthew Kressler who write, um, who write sort of on this issue, um, kind of like how we can understand um, Catholicism in this way and what um, what the consequences might be as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, self-promotion time. Um, where can we get your book? Uh, where can we follow your work? And what do you have uh, that you're working on right now? Um, so yeah, uh, 
you are uh, welcome. Uh, all listeners are welcome to follow me on Twitter. I am uh, uh, at, at GrozMike on Twitter. Um, I can't say I'm a great uh, tweeter. I have a um, toddler now, which it turns out sort of becomes difficult to do, like literally anything else. Um, yes. But, um, so, uh, but yeah, I sort of uh, keep current with my work there as best I can. Um, I mean, my book's available, you know, on um, online, the Chicago Press website, Amazon, um, independent booksellers, all that good stuff. Um, for me, what I'm working on now, um, so I work at the University of Northern Iowa, which one of our sort of core programs is uh, teacher education, teacher preparation. Um, and so like one in four of our students are training to be um, like public school teachers. Mm. Um, and so anyway, one of the things I've really been working on since I took this job and sort of thinking about more is the relationship between religion and public education, um, but also the religion, the relationship between religion, public education and national security. Mm. Um, and so my current project, which I'm now just sort of in its earliest stages, is really sort of tracing that um, relationship across broader American history, like why um, why were security institutions interested in what Americans learn about religion in K-12, right? Like, um, why are we interested in things like uh, religious literacy, for example? Um, and that, right, this has, um, you know, there's considerations here, not just for, you know, U.S. domestic policy, but U.S. foreign policy. Um, and so, yeah, that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff I'm working on now. Yeah. Well, right on. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate the time. Um, Dr. Michael Graziano, thank you so much uh, for joining on uh, Dissonant Orthodoxy. Thanks for having me. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.